Praise the Lord. All right. The name of this message is, You Must Vote. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Do I mean if you don't go out and vote, you're a heathen? Well, we do live in a representative government. It's supposed to be government of the people. So in a way, you're supposed to be king. But really, Jesus should be king. Amen. Amen. We're not a democracy. We're a democratic republic. Uh, rep in, we're representative form of government as well but uh, <laughs> technically speaking the majority vote can win uh, if everybody votes that your hair must be green eventually that could actually take effect you know if there were certain amendments passed things of that nature so uh, we don't have a perfect governmental system it's way better than most of the government sy systems around the world uh, by far but there, you know it's not be perfect until Jesus comes, amen? amen? The perfect monarch. Be a monarchy and he'll rule, amen? But right now, uh, when I'm talking about we must vote, I'm not even talking politically. Although I think it's important to do that if you can, you know? Uh, you know what? How many of you have seen some of these lists that go around the internet this time of year about how one vote changed this and one vote changed that and one vote changed this? Anybody see those? You know, they're all over the place. You see a lot of those. And I was reading a couple of them recently. And I'm reading, in 1645, one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of England. In 1649, one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed. In 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler leadership of the Nazi party. In 1941, one vote saved selective service just weeks before Pearl Harbor was attacked. Some years ago, Jesse Jackson, and I, don't, well, I will not call him Reverend Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson, pro-baby pro killer guy. Jesse Jackson, before the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles, stated in his speech, one vote decided that America would speak English rather than German in, in 1776. One vote kept Aaron Burr, later charged with treason, from becoming our president. One vote made Texas part of the United States of America in 1845. One vote changed France from a monarchy to a republic. And they go on and on. And it seems very impressive. It's like, whoa, my vote counts so much. But guess what? All the thing I just read you is a lie. Do you know that? <laughs> Some sound good, yeah, because we didn't want to be under England, so hey, let's, let's vote on whether we can speak English or German. Hey, if I spoke German, danke schön, you know. There's some cool, cool language there. Oh, it's a little harsh sometimes. It's great to train horses, though. Uh, no offense with my German brothers and sisters. I'm, I got a little German in me. Anyway, all these ahistorical huh, lessons aren't really lessons and for example, in 1845, it wasn't one vote that brought Texas into the Union. Uh, in 1845, the U.S. Senate passed a convention annexing Texas by two votes, 25 to 27, two votes. And it also took uh, the, the, uh, the ratification by the Texas Congress and another vote, you know, with people. So that is, some of these things have a little truth in them, but they're not true. The claim that one vote we'd be speaking German is not true. In Virginia, the, represent the uh, representatives of Virginia uh, put forth uh, a, a vote as to whether 3,000 laws could be translated into German so their German constituencies that they represented could, you know, uh, have the laws in their language, in their, foreign, in, their, in their language. That's what that vote was about. And it wasn't about whether we would all speak German or not. Adolf Hitler, that one was a doozy. By one vote <laughs> in 1921... 
It was 1921, by the way, not 1923, as it says. And it wasn't by one vote that he won. He won and became head of the Nazi party by a whopping 553 votes to one. There's only one vote for him, you know? So some of these lists are just absolutely uh, crazy. But you know what? Sometimes one vote does determine very important things. In fact, in recent history, in recent history, most of the Supreme Court's votes on abortion have been decided by one vote. And guess what? You'd hate, I don't want you to go away from this message and not vote and say, we lost by one vote. I can't believe Joe said that. I thought my vote didn't matter. No, I'm not saying your vote, your vote can very well matter. And, we, and, and you know what? We, sh we should definitely vote. Amen? So I want to encourage you uh, to get out and vote. But that's not what I mean with the title of this message, you must vote. There's another election afoot that has eternal ramifications and determines what kingdom you will be in for all of eternity. And your vote absolutely matters. Amen. Because you cast the deciding vote. God's already for you. Amen? Amen. He already paid the price. He already provided salvation for you. He loves you so much. Amen? Amen? There's like three votes. And thankfully, they're not equal either. God is just, you know, he's sovereign. So he's exerting all kinds of beautiful pressure. But he will not rape you. He's not a cosmic rapist. He will not force you into his kingdom to, and to love him. It has to come from your heart. So God's voting for you. Yeah, Satan votes against you, of course. There's two votes. But guess who's going to ultimately be responsible as to whether they go to heaven or hell? Can you blame it on God? Nope, it's going to be us. You have to cast that deciding vote. And it's not just a vote. It's a putting saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and having a relationship with him. I'm using it more as a metaphor, of course. Uh, now, it's interesting in Joshua 24, 15, it says, But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, either the gods which your fathers served, which are beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So scriptures say, choose for today whom you will serve. You have a choice. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, it says, then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal or Baal is God, follow him. But the people did not answer a word. Both of these passages have to do with either worshiping the one true God and the choice that you have in the matter or worshiping any of the false gods that represent Satan's kingdom. You're going to be following or you're going to cast a vote. When I say and tell my messages, you must vote. Guess what? Everybody votes. Amen? Amen. Everybody is voting. Satan votes against you. He wants, he, he wants to bring as many people down with him as possible. He brought over a third of the angels down with him when he rebelled against the living God. Amen? Amen. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 talks about how he blinds the minds of those that believe not because he wants to keep you from casting your decision to follow the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says... If our gospel is hidden, it's hidden because the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Amen? Amen? So he's blinding the minds of those that believe not. He's not trying to get the unbeliever. He already has. I mean, he's just to keep them blinded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we must get out the vote. Amen? Amen. We must preach the gospel. For the Bible says the gospel is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Amen? So we must do that. Now, guess what? 
when we plant the gospel seed in someone's heart, Satan is still out for the vote. He's still voting against them. And it says in Luke chapter uh, 8, that once that word, the seed is sown in their hearts, that Satan snatches it from their hearts, lest they believe and be saved. So it's imperative that we make sure that we plant that seed and that also if we can, we seek to cultivate it. We seek to pray for those people that we are sharing with, amen, that they would know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting. Right now, Donald Trump, I was going to say Donald Trump and Joe Biden are crisscrossing the country. Well, Donald Trump's crisscrossing the country and I guess Biden's kind of walking back and forth in his basement a little bit and getting out once in a while, they say, you know. Uh, this is kind of crazy. It's really scary when you think about this whole picture, you know. Uh, but it's interesting. They're trying to get the vote out. And actually Biden and Obama have teamed up and have went to different states and so forth right now. They're trying to get the vote. Trump's trying to get the vote. And the votes of the American people are going to make the difference. Okay? The Lord has set it up in such a way where he could just say, you know what? I'm just going to have everybody in my kingdom, period, universalism. But he's not like that. Even though he's love, he doesn't will that any would perish. He wills that all would come to repentance. No pleasure doth the wicked. Because God is purely righteous and he cannot bring the wicked and unrepentant wicked who refuse to repent and come to him, even though he wills that all would repent, that none would perish. He will not bring the wicked into his kingdom. Otherwise, his kingdom would not be a righteous kingdom. Amen. And he cannot fellowship with that which seeks to be wicked. That's why repentance is critical but you know what you know it's amazing that the vote for you was cast before you were even born we know that amen, amen. remember what the lord says in jeremiah 1 5 before i formed you in the womb i knew you before you were born i set you apart i appointed you as a prophet to the nations before jeremiah was even born he knew him not that jeremiah existed in a pre-existence no but he knew everything about Jeremiah. Every word that he would speak, man. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And in, he, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, you can even go beyond that. It talks about before the creation of the world, God chose us in Christ Jesus and predestined us in love according to his glorious plan. What's his plan? It goes on to talk about it. Talks about those who would hope in Jesus would be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. His plan was the gospel would go out and that whoever would believe would be saved. And he predestines us with a foreknowledge. It says we're elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. Amen. Romans eight, twenty eight and twenty nine. For God works all things together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to become uh, conformed to the image of his dear his son. Amen. So God has a plan even before you existed. The vote's already gone out. How will you respond is the, is, is the issue. How will you respond is the key. Now, it's interesting because the greatest thing that keeps people from casting in their lot, from seeking the Lord and putting Him first in their lives and voting and saying, hey, I, wanna, I want you to be Lord of my lives, my life. 1 Peter 3.15 says to set Christ up as Lord in your heart. Amen. That's a choice we have. We can either say, I want you to be Lord of my heart, or I don't want you to be Lord of my heart. Paul said, if we believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, if we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, amen, 
We believe in our heart that God raised from the dead. We shall be saved. But you must confess him as Lord. Lord means master. It means we're saying, hey, you're going to be my master. I recognize that you are the creator of all things. And I'm not going to go around being my own God. And I'm going to stop worshiping idols. Idols are the greatest enemies. If you look at the most pervasive warnings throughout Scripture in the Old and New Testament together, by far and away, and it's not even close, it's the warnings against idolatry. It's the warnings against idolatry. And in Acts chapter 17, because Satan uses idols to keep your eyes off of Jesus, to keep you away from submitting and following him. Go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Now, when you go to Acts 17, I want you to go ahead and understand a little bit of the context here. Paul is going to go preach on Mars Hill. He's going to Athens. Athens was the most religious place in Greece. It was the religious hub of Greece. There were temples, all kinds of false gods all over the place. And it's interesting because Paul is going through there and he's very, very disturbed. He's very, very grieved as he's going through Athens. And there are a lot of the different philosophical groups there. And we read in chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. As Paul was waiting in Athens, what was happening? His spirit was provoked Deeply disturbed, the Greek word means, within him because the city was full of idols. Now keep in mind, Paul knows that these idols are not God. He also knows they represent false gods. The Greeks had just a very, very strange mythological religion that had also influenced the Romans, you know. The problem of evil, how did it start? Oh, Pandora's opened a box and all this evil came out of this box. It's just ridiculous. It's stupid. So people hearing the gospel are like, wow, this makes way more sense than the Athenian, you know, problem of evil and how they solve it and all these different gods and people are coming to Christ. But these demons that use these idols, well, they want to get out the vote and they're very persuasive and they're very real, the entities behind these idols. And there was a spiritual war. So Paul was very, very grieved in his heart. And it's interesting uh, Pos, uh, Posulinus, he's a uh, historian and a traveler that visited Athens a couple centuries after this scripture was written. And he said, literally, he said of Athens that there are almost more gods than people there. That's how many gods they had. Thousands of false gods. You know, a God of war, a God of peace, a, a God of love, a God of hate, a God of arts, a God of carpentry, a God of masons, a God of jealousy, a God of anger, ad agnosium, just on and on and on, all these different Greek gods, you know, all of strange kind of myth mythology and so forth. And then what's interesting is Paul's saying, no, there's only one God, one true God, and he's not an idol. You don't make him into, a, you know, sticks or rocks or, or gold and silver. And he had to fight against this. And we're in a world where we are called to get out the vote. We're called to present people with the gospel. We're also supposed to be iconoclastic. An iconoclast is one who tears down the idols. That's what the prophets were like in the Old Testament. Esau did a good job until he turned, sadly, at the end of his life. Josiah, when he was a young guy and became king of Israel, one of the things he had done was tearing down the idols, you know, of Israel. 
And it's important that we get it. We see how serious this is. Now, it's interesting because they're worshiping all these false gods. Now, in worshiping these false gods, they were empty inside. They were empty inside. And it's interesting, Paul knew that. And he knew that they were, their lives were like, as, as the Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, it's like chasing the wind, empty. Because all these idols couldn't fulfill them. Oh, they could have experiences, demonic experiences, sometimes pleasures from these demonic entities, but they were deceivers. They would lead them in true love. They wouldn't have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, peace, joy, long-suffering, and so forth. They didn't experience that. So they were always searching for something more. That's why they were on Mars Hill. That's why Paul is talking to the philosophers. Always, they wanted to always hear something new, the scriptures say. And that's what happens when you don't have rest. We don't have peace in the Lord. You always feel empty and you're always searching for something more. Praise God, the Bible tells us that our sufficiency is in Christ. Amen. That He is our peace. Amen. Amen. That He is our wisdom. Amen. Amen. That we are complete, it says, in Him. Colossians chapter 1. That we're not to run ahead, it says in 2 John chapter 2. And, but we're to abide in Christ, it says in 2 John chapter 2. Those who run ahead and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ says do not have God. So we need to make sure we focus on Jesus in our lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is critical. By the way, I love what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3 verse 11. Yet God has made everything beautiful in its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. So this is one way God gets out the vote. He plants eternity in our hearts. Since we were made to know Him, amen, we we're created to have fellowship with Him and have a, a walk with Him. And him to, he was, we we're created for Him to live in us. Amen. And guess what? If we don't have Christ, we have this longing in our hearts, this emptiness. And if we don't want to submit to Him because we don't like His terms, we want to be our own gods, that place will never be filled up. Amen. We have this eternal void in our hearts that only the eternal God can fill. Amen. Yeah, you remember you see that commercial came out a few years ago and it shows this guy, he's a mechanic, right? And he just can't turn the bolt or something. He starts, gets angry and really upset, throws a little temper tantrum. Then it shows him when he was a little kid, when he was playing with that little tiny game with the, you know, the, you got the stars and the rectangles and the squares and the circles and he's trying to hammer the, the, the square through the circle and he's getting all frustrated then too. And so this, he's always been like that, you know? Well, that's how most of the world is. They're trying to hammer a square peg in a round hole. Only God fits in our hearts. Only He fits perfectly. Only He satisfies. Only He gives peace. Amen? So Satan's trying to get out the vote all the time, but guess what? He's got a problem. He can't satisfy people ultimately. Eventually, whether it's sex or drugs, it doesn't satisfy. So they go on to something more stronger, worse, more perverse. And the world's getting more and more wicked as we see it. You know? And well, maybe we just need less laws. We defund the police everywhere, by the way. With all this defunding the police going on through the nation, you know, murders are skyrocketing in these same places where they're defunding the police. You've seen the stats, 30, 40, 50%. Crazy. So people want to have peace and love and joy without the Lord, though. They're seeking these things in the wrong places. But by the grace of God, he brings revelation, amen, to us. And 
That same Ecclesiastes 3.11 says in one translation, the Amplified Version, quote, He has made everything beautiful and appropriate in his time. He has also planted eternity, a sense of divine purpose in the human heart, a mysterious longing which nothing under the sun can satisfy except God. That's not a translation as much as a paraphrase, but it's a very good paraphrase because there is this place in our hearts where we can only be fulfilled by the Lord. And this is great. We call this prevenient grace, these different things I'm talking about. A few years back, I did a message called The Beautiful... Uh, the beauty of prevenient grace. Prevenient grace, I've told you for years, I believe is the most neglected aspect of grace in the body of Christ. And to me, it's one of the most beautiful aspects of grace. You know? The early church fathers, you know, they talked about the graces of God. There's so much grace. And long before you come to faith in Christ, God was already pursuing you. Amen? Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. Amen? So God was already drawing you with cords of love. Amen? Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw who? All men to himself. Now, not everybody responds. But guess what? Isn't it awesome to know that God loved you so much that he was pursuing you before you were pursuing him? You didn't wake up one morning saying, wow, I wonder who God is, and I'm going to find him. And God was like, oh, that guy's interested in me. No, God's been knocking on your heart since... Guess what? Since before you were born, since before creation, he had planned this. Amen? And I gave a message uh, called The Beauty of Prevenient Grace years ago. And I've done this, given these, this, these, these ways that he seeks you for years and years and years. But I put it in a message called The Beauty of Prevenient Grace of all the different ways that God seeks us out before. And I remember Ripple came up. Renal and Ripple. Remember, Ripple came up and she was a newer believer and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, I didn't realize how much God loves me and how he was seeking me, you know, like that before I was born. Or I mean, I'm sorry, before I was born again. And it just made her life, she said, make sense. Because there was a lot of confusion, she said, in her life. And then she goes, I, it makes my life all of a sudden take on a whole different thing to think that God was doing this. And we'll see this even in this passage. Paul mentions how God uses this pre-salvific grace to draw us. You are here right now not just as a result of one instantaneous decision you made. You're made because before you ever made a decision to say yes to the Lord, he was already saying, guess what? I will not hold your trespasses against you. You know, be reconciled. He even says, Paul says, we beg you, be reconciled to God. That was his heart. Now it's interesting. The idols, though, will keep you from the Lord. And you may think, well, if you looked at the idols in Athens... And in the Roman Empire, you might say, well, we don't worship gods made of tree stumps and silver and gold and wood and stone. We don't have a problem of idolatry in America. Is that true? You ever hear the so-called almighty dollar? Not almighty at all. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon refers to money there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, 24. You either love the one and hate the other, you hate the one and love the other. You cannot put mammon before God. You can't put your career before Jesus. You can't put making money before the Lord in your walk with God. That's serious stuff, okay? The Bible says twice in Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that greed is idolatry. And guess what? 
Much of the church is filled with idolaters, filled with greed, people living for themselves. In fact, many, many preachers are constantly preaching, give us this and, we'll, and God will send this back to you. Give us more and then you'll get your seed faith and then this come back to you, you know. And they're not about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You rarely hear these guys preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's always about getting you're like parasites in the Bible. So in the American church, this is the most popular doctrine among the most popular form of the gospel in America. It's called the prosperity gospel. The word faith movement. It's all over TBN. I'm sorry, it is. It's, it's heretical. And we have a huge problem, not only in the country, but in the quote-unquote church, the visible church. A lot of that's not the church. Masquerades is a church. It's all about having your best life now is one of the... Uh, Joel Olstein's book is titled similar to that, you know? And prosperity. It's not, guys, we got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to be careful with putting material things before the Lord. The Bible says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. Amen? Amen. You're, we're here just for a short time. Praise God for his provisions. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says God's given us all things to enjoy. So it's not like he's saying you need to be a hermit, live in a hole in the woods, okay? But at the same time, you want to make sure you're not attached to possessions and that you have possessions, but that possessions don't have you, amen? And you know when possessions don't have you, when you know they could all disappear and you'll still be good with Jesus and you won't get angry. If you get angry because you lose things, well then, where's your focus on the Lord? I'm not saying you can't, you, you know, something can't happen. You get, oh, that's a bummer that happened. But I'm saying it shouldn't be where your whole heart is, amen? It should be, okay, I, God provided me that. He'll take care of me, amen? Ultimately, amen? So we need to be really, really concerned about where our hearts are. Another idol besides money and also besides material things that's worshipped today is simply the idol of self. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, Last days men will be lovers of what? Very first verse. Last days terrible or perilous, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self. Is any of that going on in America? <laughs> I mean, it's just what it's all about. A lot of celebrities are all, it's all about them, you know. So there's a lot of idols. There's millions of idols. Men get up and they shave their idols. In the morning, women put makeup on their idols, you know, hours sometimes, you know. Not saying not to shave. Well, man, your beard got long, bro. Yeah, I heard that message you gave, you know. Man, that gal wears more wake makeup than ever. When she stops, she drips, you know. No, that's not my point. It's not like you can't wear, you know, makeup or you can't, you know, shave. The thing is, is don't worship yourself. Peter, will you too go away after it says in John chapter 6, verse 66, that many of his disciples follow him no longer. He says, where will I go? To Peter. Peter says, where will I go? You have the words of eternal life. Wise up. Amen. Amen. Our lives are vapors. Our eternal life is in him. Amen. Amen. So we want to make sure we don't put self before him. You know. 2 Timothy 3, 4. Speak of other idols a few verses later. This is indicative of the end times, it says, that men will love, be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Is any of that going on in America? Yeah, you know how many people are not in fellowship right now that profess to be Christians because they love pleasures more than God? Praise God, if you're here or you're watching my live stream and you're in the Word with us, it's most likely 
because you love the Lord God and you're like, you know what? I dedicate myself to him and I want to put him first in my life. Amen. And he, he, he created me. He gave me life. He redeemed me by his precious blood. I owe everything to him. The least I could give him is some time of worship on the Lord's day. Amen. So we want to make sure we don't put pleasures before God. Now, the Athenians knew deep down they were missing something. And they had gods everywhere, but that's why they kept multiplying their gods. That's how the world is. But it's interesting because Paul gives them a subtle rebuke in Acts 17.22, if you could go there. So Paul stood in the midst of Theriopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. I see that you're very religious in all respects. What's interesting is that Greek word he uses there for religious. And it had come to mean religious. It was used by Plutarch, who was the priest, the high priest at the temple there uh, of Apollo, or the, uh, of Delphi. And at the temple of Apollo, he was the high priest, and he's the one that had the woman Oh, the women that would work for him that would channel demons as they'd open themselves up to the vapors, the pharmacia, and open themselves up and so forth. And Plutarch used that word over and over again, but he used it always, every time he used it, was a negative way, which is kind of interesting. And people debate as to how Paul was using it. But I think it's interesting when you look at what Paul says, I see that you're very religious. The word, I think, is interesting. It's desi, D-E-I, which makes the A sound in Greek, S-I, des, desi, and then next, it's a compound word. That's the first part of the word. Then it's daimon, D-A-I, A-I, it's pronounced I in Greek, D-A-I-M-O-N, M-O-N. So it's, it's desidaimon estros, esteros, E-S-T-E-R-O-U-S, R-O-U in Greek is us. So it's desidaimon esteros. And it's interesting. That's a big, long Greek word. But the middle part of that, first part of the word, okay, it's interesting, is from delos, which is a servant. It means to serve or to worship. And the next part of the word, daimon, is the word from which we get the word demon. Okay? D-A-I-M-O-N. And for the Greeks, they were gods. From the Greek perspective, they were worshiping these different gods. From the Apostle Paul's perspective, they were demons. And Paul stated, states this elsewhere. And Paul would later condemn their idol worship right in the same message when he's preaching to them. So the word had come to mean superstitious or religious. But the etymology of the word, when the Greeks heard it, they knew the, the diamond, the worship of the gods was impregnated within the word. And they worshiped all these false gods. And I think it's very interesting. When you worship idols beside the Lord, you are being taken over led astray, oppressed by the demonic world. How do we know Paul regarded these diamonds as demons? These diamonds as demons? Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. Listen to what he says. What do I mean then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things the Gentiles sacrifice, the Athenians as well, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become partakers with demons. That's how Paul regarded these idols. Because 
demonic entities, Satan, demonic entities will use things to get people to worship those things because they can get them to worship those things that they're animating, that they're using, that they're enticing them with and keep them from one true God through idolatry. Ultimately, it's the worship of demons. In fact, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 13 that all the world, it tells us, will worship the beast. And it says right after that, in that context, that because they're worshiping the beast, it says they will be worshiping the dragon, Satan. So when people worship the Antichrist, it's not just a man. He's animated, he's empowered by Satan. Be, the world will be full of devil worshipers. And they'll put him before the living God. That's why I tell you all the time, I don't care who wins whatever elections, you keep your eye on everybody. Even when somebody seems, oh, look what they're doing, they're great. Hitler did a lot of radical things. Turned Germany around. Look how good he is. All these people coming here and speak. Wow, he's changed Germany. It's like, he had to be the Antichrist. No, he was almost, he was a picture of the Antichrist though. <laughs> Wasn't a good guy. Killed millions and millions of Jews. Over 50 million people dead, you know. Also, there's good guys that could have big crowds and get people excited that do a lot of good things, right? And they're not the Antichrist. They're not, they're not even trying to be Antichrist, okay? But you need to watch everybody, okay? And when it comes to voting as far as issues go, I think the smartest thing to do is look at the issues. What best represents your Christian faith? What issues are more pro-life? What issues are pro traditional biblical marriage what issues uh who best represents these types of issues you know even though sadly within and i'm talking about not just presidents i'm talking about everything you just got to look at everything what gives the government more and more control over your life when you look at the mainstream media the fourth wing of government uh <laughs> does it look like it's pro-christian does it even look a smidgen of honest and you want people to control your lives more and more? And trust men? When you allow socialism to take over, ask those in Venezuela. Ask those in Cuba that came here. Ask people that were part of the former Soviet Union, uh, the countries in the Soviet Union, uh, the satellite countries, what it was like, okay? They shake their heads when they see all these young people, you know, Bernie, Bernie, you know, Bernie brothers. It's like, do they even have a clue when Bernie went to the Soviet Union and praised them, you know, praised certain parts of Cuba? Do they recognize, and Bernie's not on the ballot, but socialism is to a degree. Do they recognize that when the government takes full control and, uh, or, or, you know, and guess what, Every, our government has socialistic things in it, you know, social security and so forth and some some things are very helpful but when you have a despotic rulership that becomes fully or largely socialistic the more and more freedoms you tend to lose the more and more choices you tend to lose and and i'm not all about that in my message but i am about this i recognize that the lord i recognize what happened to communists to the christians in in communist russia in china and that over uh, over 100 million people 100 million can you catch that more people died under communist regimes than every other form of government ever in history in just the last century that's despotic power and so we need to be concerned so yeah it's good to vote you know i don't say you must vote 
my message is you must vote. But I don't say you must vote politically, but I encourage you to pray about it and consider that, guess what? You might be the one vote that makes a difference on some kind of legislative issue, you know? But guess what? You must vote. You must vote when it comes to salvation. And that's my message today. I didn't even plan on going off of what I just did, but it's on my heart. Now, it's interesting. Paul said the gods that they worship are demons. Applies also to the Athenians, obviously. And look at Acts chapter 17 now, verse 23. The first part of verse 23. For while I was passing through, while I was passing through Athens and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. <laughs> he goes, you know what? <laughs> I was going through Athens and he's seen all these gods, right? He's vexed. He's torn up. Paul's thinking, how do I witness to these guys, you know? And that's, that's a great thing to keep in mind, too. You want to find out, how can I find something that I can relate to when I'm sharing with these people that gives them an aha moment where it's like, whoa, I need to change who I'm, what I'm worshiping. And Paul says, I noticed an inscription to an unknown God. Wow. Now, there were many altars in Athens to the unknown God. Isn't that interesting? See, what happened years before this, there was a huge plague that I was going through Athens and Greece claiming the lives of people. You know? I'm assuming worse than COVID. I don't know. And, uh, but pretty bad. People were dying. And guess what? It wasn't stayed. It kept going. But there was a flock of sheep that was let loose through Athens. And guess what? Not long after that flock of sheep was let loose, the plague was stayed. It stopped. And they're like, oh, we need to give thanks to our gods. And they began to get those sheep and whatever god, they'd find a sheep nearby, they would sacrifice that sheep to that god, whichever one was closest. So if there was a god Apollo or a statue of Dionysius or, you know, Persephone or whoever, Athena, whatever god or goddess, they would sacrifice that sheep and build it to that altar and thank that god. But guess what? There were some sheep that weren't by any god. They were just out there. And like, what god do we give thanks to for this sheep and sacrifice it to? We don't know. We have so many gods. But this must be a god we don't know about. So they build an altar to the un an unknown god. <laughs> whatever god you are, that's out there somewhere. We're sacrificing this sheep to you. Kind of crazy, huh? So they had, if you go through Athens, you'd see these, uh, these, these altars dedicated to the unknown God as a result of those plagues, of that plague and their response. And Paul's saying, I love it, man. Paul is super, I love Paul. He's a super amazing guy. And ha, he was like, hey, you know what, guys? You have this altar, you know, to the unknown God. Let me tell you about who he is. Let me fill you in, you know, and let you know who the unknown God is. I love that. Go back to 1723. And I'll read the first and second part too this time. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance... 
because you're admitting it. You don't know who you're worshiping there. This I proclaim to you. This I proclaim to you. Now remember, Jesus says that God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Amen? Amen. Told that to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And they were worshiping all these idols made with hands and these demons. And Paul's saying, you guys don't know who this unknown God is that you're trying to worship. Because he knew deep down they were worshiping this unknown God, but he says, let me fill in the blanks. Because you guys seem to know about every false God. Let me show you who the one true God is. I love this. Then look at verse 24. Isn't this a cool story? He, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. First of all, he's the creator of everything. He made the heavens and the earth. In Greek mythology, life and time and everything was cyclical. Everything just repeated themselves. They didn't understand time as having a beginning and being linear and having an ending and judgment. They just had this cyclical thing, you know, and we're just on this cycle that just keeps going, you know. And Paul's like, no, there's a beginning point. There's a creator that created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, does not science prove that now? Amen. Even Einstein believed that in what was called the eternal state theory, that everything just always existed for all, all of history, that there was no beginning and he did that because he didn't want to accept the Creator. But then, through the Hubble telescope, Hubble found, guess what? The universe is expanding. It had to have had a beginning point. Einstein didn't want to believe that. He looked through the telescope at Hubble. Hubble telescope there was. Pass, uh, checked it out. He checks it out. And he comes down. It was the media filmed it, you know. And he's like, oy vey. Not his exact words, but something like that. There is a beginning. And he said, he said his biggest blunder was his belief in the eternal state that there was no beginning. Now he's stuck. He's got to deal with this creator. And then Einstein said, yeah, there, there is a creator. And he talked about his mind must be vast. Like a, a ki- we're like a kid, little kid in the vast library. We can't really understand the mind of God and so forth. But he didn't want God to be personal because he didn't want to submit to the personal God. So he subscribed to pantheism, that God is in everything. He's impersonal. Spinoza he followed, you know. So he still checked out his responsibility to God. And to be honest with you, he was a playboy of types, believe it or not, Einstein, you know. He had not the best lifestyle when it came to sexuality and so forth. So people don't want to submit to the one true God. He's telling those in Athens, Paul, guess what? The true God created everything. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. That's a crazy thing. And that shows you there's so many evidences that God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he had them build the temple, he said, don't make images of God. You go throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Ain. Ain is ancient Near Eastern societies, people groups, civilizations. And guess everywhere pretty much, guess what you do when you came into somebody's temple? You'd see all these demonic looking gods. You go to the Jewish temple, there's no gods. Where's your God? He's the creator of heaven and earth. <laughs> you have to worship in spirit and truth. Amen. He's the one true God. Amen. I think it's just amazing. Verse uh, 25, nor is, he served, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. See, he, since he himself gives to people the life and breath 
and life and breath to all things. He doesn't need you to exist. Isaiah kind of mocks those who worship idols. He says they have ears, but they can't hear. You know, they have eyes, they can't see. They have mouths, they can't speak. And at one point, the prophet says, one of the prophets says, you have to carry your God around. They carry their idols to different places. He goes, what kind of God is that? He can't even move, you know. And now look at verse 28. And he made from one man, from Adam, every nation of mankind. We're all related to each other. You know that, right? That's proven by science too. To live on all the face of the earth. Now look at this. Here's that pre-saving grace. Not only before you were born did he have a plan for you. But look at this. Having determined their appointed times. When you would, when you would live. God planned when you specifically would live. And the boundaries of their habitation. Not just when you would be alive, but where you would live. Where you would grow up. He knows who would respond to the gospel and who would not respond to the gospel. Amen? He's a master chess player. He foreknew that you'd be one of those folks that he'd move on your heart and you would not continue to say no the rest of your life. And he put you in a place where you would hear the gospel. Praise his name. Amen? And when somebody says, what about a person that never hears the gospel? I say, hey, that's easy. John 7, 17. Jesus said, whoever wills to do the will of the Father will know who Jesus is. Amen. They'll know the doctrine. And he knows. Amen? And if he knows that you'll come to him, he'll put you in a position eventually where you'll come to him. Well, what if a preacher doesn't get to him? I remember I told you before, and some of you were there, and I was, we were in the building, and I'm preaching a message on, on how God doesn't will that anyone would perish, and he reaches people in the, with angels. He sends angels to preach the everlasting gospel. He does all kinds of different things. And a gal in the back raised up her hand, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm on tape. If I start talking to you, we run the cassette tapes in, and I start going back and forth, people are not going to be able to hear. There'll be blank spots in the tape. But she was like this again. And I was like, okay, speak up. And she was with a guy on a dialysis machine, a Muslim guy at Simi Hospital who went into a coma and was in coma for over a month, I guess. And Muslim. And he woke up out of his coma. The first thing he said is, Jesus is God. <laughs> That's awesome. And she said since that time, he led about, and she was a new Christian herself. And her name was Hilda. Is Hilda. I shouldn't say was. Is Hilda. And she said, about 35, he led about 35 people to Christ who were subsequently baptized. Wow. And she was tripping out. She goes, you know, well, that's biblical. Yeah, it is. And we, re we hear all the time about how God's reaching people in all kinds of ways. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Verse 27. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he appoint your time and the place you're going to live? Verse 27. That they would what? Seek God. That they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him or grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Isn't that awesome to know? The Lord is not far from any of us. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. He says, am I not God that is far? But he says, also a God that is near. Amen. He's a prayer away. I remember when I was, before I was a Christian, and I was anti-Christ, anti-God, and God began to show me my folly and reveal my stupidity to me, my rebellion as a punk teenager. And I remember when he got my attention, I started to realize, wow, I've opened myself up to something really demonic. I remember just in my heart crying out to him in the most feeble prayer you could ever pray. Boom. He responded, bam. So I was under attack and it stopped. A week or two later, boom, same thing happened. I cried out to him more directly. Boom, it stopped. And he revealed it. I'm like, wow. You're not only powerful, more powerful than what I was getting into, but you're right here and you're good. You're good. 
and I'm the bad guy. What do I need? And then I found out what the gospel was. Started reading my Bible, reading a Bible. Like, whoa, man, I've been an enemy of God. And there's this demonic rebellion led by Satan against God. And, and brothers and sisters, you have to choose Christ. Amen. So he picked the time and the place that you would live. He got out the vote. He put you in the voting booth. He said, hey, boom, it's time to vote. This is when your life, boom, I'm giving you a great opportunity to choose me. Here's Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. Choose this day whom you will serve. Amen. You need to make sure you seek him. Verse 28. Paul says, For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, For we also are his descendants. He quotes two poets there. I don't have time to get into it there. Verse, and we're not going through Acts if we were. And I was just on this passage. I'd spend more time on it, but we're not doing that. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature... The creator of all things, the heavens and earth. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance. God overlooked the times of their ignorance. God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to what? Are to repent. Turn to the Lord. Verse 31. Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Amen? Amen. So guess what? The greatest aspect of grace is what Jesus did on the cross. God becoming a man, paying for your sin, saving grace. Amen? That's why the grace we talk about by far and away most in this fellowship is what Jesus did for us in his death, his burial and resurrection. When he said, it is finished, paid in full, he paid the IOU. He paid the debt that you and I had. Amen? He took our sin upon himself. Everything that you've ever done wrong. Everything. He died for on the cross. Amen? He didn't miss one sin. The Bible says if we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we'll be saved. We believe in heart, God raised him for the dead. But it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from a little bit of unrighteousness. Is that what it says? Some, most, 95% of it? No, all unrighteousness. That's good news, amen? You don't have to work at all to obtain his favor. He's already put his favor upon you. He's already shown you love and given you grace if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As many as accepted him or received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. Now it's interesting, you guys, because we have this amazing grace that he's given us, but there's so many ways he called you to himself. So we've talked about before you even existed. We talk about when you were born, the place you were born, the time you were born, right? All these, I'm, I'm, there's all kinds of aspects of pre-regenerating grace, the beautiful grace that we could go into, but we just scratched the surface. We're talking about before you existed and when you were born. But as you started to get a little older and you got about the age of these little girls that are running right now, probably to go to the bathroom, okay? Uh, when you got about that age, you started to consider more in regarding who you were a little bit, but you were still young. You really didn't understand fully who God is. But then when you got a little bit older, you know, and you got Micah's age, right? Right? <laughs> Think of you guys. And Jordan and Taylor's age and all these guys. When you got their age, 
They're going the other way, other bathroom. Okay. <laughs> then you said, I need to make a decision. And they just both accepted Jesus. Made, you know, not sure exactly when, but not too, you know, a while back they were open, but they were just baptized last Sunday. Sounds like I'm doing this on purpose, but it's just getting up perfect timing. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. Now, can some old folks get up now and go in? I'll try to fit, fit you in there too, you know. Maybe I'll just walk. No, just kidding. Uh, but God works, and we don't know when that age of accountability is, but you know what? We don't know what sin is when we're really, really little. We don't really understand that we've offended the God of all creation and we've broken his moral law. But guess what? He gives us a conscience, right? And he writes his law in our hearts when we're young. So then we become aware of that as we begin to grow and get older. And Paul said in Romans 7, 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin is had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law did not say, you shall not covet. And he said it was through the law that he became aware that he was a sinner before God, that he was exceedingly sinful, and that he needed to be saved by grace. So God brings his moral law to bear upon our hearts. So we have a sense of guilt, and we have what's called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That's pre-regenerating grace. God's Holy Spirit comes upon us and convicts us of our, our sin and he shows us how we've broken God's moral law. And even before we have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we have a sense that we're guilty before God because of our consciences. Amen? And God begins to resurrect our consciences if we've dulled them in any way through the work of the Holy Spirit to make us acutely aware that we are sinful before God, that we are guilty before God, that we will face judgment because of that sin and that we need our lives to be rectified to him. We need to get right with him before we face him if we're to be saved. Amen? So it's very, very important to understand. In fact, I love Galatians 3.24 in this respect. That's where Paul, you've heard me quote this a number of times. I love this. Paul says, Therefore the law has become our guardian. The law. Thou shalt. Thou shalt not. The Jews have the guardian, the law, inscribed on tablets of stone and codified in 613 or so laws. Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. Not, not all the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, but the moral laws of God. Amen. Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ. You catch that? It's become our guardian to lead us to Christ. Some translations have schoolmaster, King James, or tutor. That's God's way of saying vote. God's moral law that shows you that he's real. That there's a moral lawgiver. If there's a law... There's a lawgiver, amen? And God did not write the moral law in your hearts that you feel guilty about when you blow it, did he? Obviously not. So it shows you that there is a lawgiver. Therefore the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So we get this law that is in our hearts and it leads us to a yearning. And when Paul said he became aware that he was a lawbreaker, he was a sinner, what happened to Paul? He explicates this whole thing in Romans 7. He said, who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. The law led him to Christ. See all the different things God is using to draw you to him, to draw you to Jesus, to, to, to reveal salvation to you. But you must choose. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I study that word. It's interesting because uh, Paul uses an interesting Greek word, pedagogos, okay? Literally, Pedagoga, pedagogos, okay? Yeah, pedagogos, okay? So it's P-A-I-D, which is pied-a-go, because it uses a 
not to get too technical, but the Greek word you use the omicron there, which is the ah sound, that the, the O, but the other O is the omega and has the O sound. So it's literally pedag pedagogos, okay? Pedagogos, or simply pedagogue is how we translate it, a pedagogue. And I love, I studied that word, I can't tell you how many times. Every time I do a study and I'm in that verse, I look at it differently because there's always something new to learn. And I'd like to never stop learning about what God's word says. But the word is just interesting because we don't have an English equivalent to it. So we translate guardian. It's not really, eh, in some respects, it's a guardian, but not fully a guardian. And in some sense, it's a tutor because the pedagogue, what he would do, okay, the pedagogos, the pedagogue, what he would do is he's usually a slave that would be in charge of you. Oh, there was some tutoring going on. He would take you to school. So his role was for you to learn. And the law's job is for us to learn, to point us to Jesus, amen, the ultimate teacher, amen. But he was more than a guardian that would, prote he would protect you for sure. He was given, ooh, man, he was responsible to protect the kids. His job was par partially protective. But it's interesting, he would also spank you. He would also discipline you. That's what the law does, right? <laughs> oh, I feel so guilty. I feel crummy. I can't believe I, you know, said that or whatever, you know. So he would, he would discipline them. There's images of the ancient pedagogues disciplining those they were over. And I thought it's interesting because, you know what, I did. You know, if you go to like Bible Hub or some of you see a lot of different translations, I'll go through a lot of different translations, but I thought, I wonder why no one's used the translation disciplinarian. Because he would discipline you. And guess what? I just typed in that verse with the word disciplinarian in it, and I was, wow, there's actually a few translations that use it. The Revised Standard Version uses it. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. The Amplified Version, with the result that the law has become our tutor and our disciplinarian to guide us to Christ so that we may be justified. Mounts, who's one of the most famous and respected Greek scholars today, his reverse interlinear New Testament says, thus the law was our disciplinarian until the time of Christ. These are translations that don't appear typically on Bible Hub, but I was able to, oh, people are dis translated disciplinarian. That's not perfectly equivalent because the slave that would take you to school and so forth wasn't just a disciplinarian either. But all these words kind of bring out, except for schoolmaster. He wasn't the schoolmaster. He'd bring you to school. He'd bring you to the teacher. The law disciplines us and shows us, guess what? We cannot be perfect before the Lord. We're fallen. We're guilty. We're in trouble. But because of that, it leads us to the school. It leads us ultimately to Jesus. Amen? So we can be saved and forgiven of our sins. The law, God, I'm trying to show you a bunch of different ways. God is getting out the vote. Amen? Amen. God is letting you know over and over again, vote for Jesus to be Lord of your life. Say, I mean, he's already there. Amen? In fact, John 1, 9 says that Jesus is, quote, the true light who enlightens every man who is coming into the world. Amen? And Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Amen? Amen. So guess what? The light, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He enlightens the heart of everyone that comes into the world. That's pre-regenerating grace. He turns the lights on. He shows you your darkness. He shows you your need for salvation. And then Jesus says, walk in the light while you have the light so you can become children of the light. You do have a choice. He showed up. I'm for you. I want you to be saved. But if you don't get forgiven, well, guess what? I'm, I'm sovereign. I'm Lord. 
I have the last say. I have the ultimate say. I'm the one that sees sovereign. He's the one that set it up this way. Amen. He's the one that said, hey, this is my plan of salvation. Come to me and you'll be saved. You don't come to me. You say no. Guess what? He gets the final vote. You reject him. You'll hear this. Well, we'll get into that in a second. We're almost done here. <sighs> the grace of God that brings salvation is appearing to all men, Titus 2.11. I love Matthew 12.30. Jesus said, he that's not with me is what? Against me. You might say, I don't have to vote, Joe. When it comes to salvation, I'm just going to sit out. I'm just going to be neutral. I'm just going to be on the fence. Does that work? No, because Jesus said, he that's not with me is what? against me. You're either for him or you're against him. There's not a default position. The position is that you're either for him or against him. To not choose is to choose against him. You must make a choice. Amen? Because Jonah 2.8 says this. Listen to this. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Wow. Or as the NIV says, those who cling to worthless idols forsake the grace of God that could be theirs. That's clear. That's clear. There's grace that could be somebody's, but they, because God's provided for everybody, but they refuse to turn to him. That's powerful. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Have you seen the meme or have you seen on the internet? It's all over the place right now. Can I change my vote? Have you seen that? A lot of people want to change their vote. It was like one of the most trending memes and, and people, young people and so forth because guess what? It's like, uh-oh. Because of the whole BLM thing. No, not Black Lives Matters. Biden's laptop, okay? A lot of people want to change their vote, you know? Because they're like, whoa. It came out that, you know, Joe Biden was uh, working with his son after all in trying to, uh, with the Chinese and so forth and his business partner, his business partner came out, a guy named Bob Alinsky which was Biden's, and he said, hey, these emails are from Joe, uh, Hunter Biden. I sat with Joe Biden. He knew all about what we were doing. In fact, he was the chairman. In fact, and he has this guy, Robert Walker, who was a business partner. He shows a phone call, and you have this Robert Walker guy on the phone, you know, which was Biden's partner as well, and his partner. And, and Robert Walker's saying, if you put this out, you're going to bury all of us, you know? <laughs> really? Well, not really, because guess what? When you have the mainstream media not saying a peep about it, Nah, there's no biasness in the press, you know. Uh, guess what? A lot of people want to change their vote. Guess what? You can change your vote. If you've been rejecting Jesus all this time, you can change your vote. Or if you've been following Jesus, you can change your vote. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing. Now we did a whole series, seven, eight messages on adding to your faith these different qualities that help you grow. That was one of the best series I think we've ever had because it was very devotional, a lot of application. And those were in the first few verses that he gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness, amen. But you add to your faith these different qualities and it's not these qualities that save you, it's Christ's grace through faith, but these qualities show the evidence that you're moving forward in your faith, amen. And he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his what? 
purification from his former sins, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his past sins. You can get to the point where you backslide and you forget you were ever even cleansed. You ever had the blood of Jesus cleansing you. That's, that's a hard heart. Therefore, brethren, he's warning the brothers and sisters, those who've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, be all the more diligent to make certain about his what? Calling and choosing you. The literal Greek says, make, as the NIV translates it, I think the ESV translates it, make your calling and election sure. The main, all these elections that you can vote in can be important, but guess what? The ultimate election as to where you spend eternity is forever. And you can change your vote right now if you haven't turned to Jesus yet, amen? But after you die, you can't change your vote, guys. It's eternal. You're in one kingdom or the other forever and ever. Make your call election sure. For as long as you practice these things, you will never what? The Greek word means fall. You'll never stumble. You'll never fall. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. For in what way? By continuing in the faith and growing in Him, trusting Him. He will abundantly supply because He gives all things that pertain to life and godliness your needs to inherit final salvation. He's there. He's able to keep you from falling. Do you know that? All He asks you to do is look to Him. But He calls you to make your calling and election sure. And you know, some people, remember when Bush and Al Gore were running against each other? I remember, I, Al, you think there's conspiracies now? There were conspiracies back then. I, when I think of Al Gore, I almost crack up every time I say Al Gore because some guy told me, do you know Al, Al Gore's a vampire? And I'm like, you know, talking, I'm like, no, what proof do you have in that? He's a vampire. I use proof. He goes, you ever see that briefcase he carries? I go, yeah. He goes, it's filled with vials of blood. <laughs> I'm like, you know, God help that guy. I love him, you know. But anyway, uh, I thought, oh, that's strange. Anyway, uh, but it's crazy because you have to make a choice. But when he and Bush ran against each other, they took that to the Supreme Court because there were so many people that did not punch their chat all the way through. Remember that? They didn't make their election, their vote, clear. Amen? You need to make your calling election clear. You need to make your calling election sure. Make sure you have Jesus. Make sure you're following Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 and 13 says, He that has the Son has the life. He that does not have the Son does not have the life. Then John says, These things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen? What's, what things? Many of those things, but the last thing he just said is, He that has the Son, he that has Jesus, has life. He that does not have the Son does not have the life. These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that you have eternal life today. How can you know? By making sure you have Jesus. Making sure you've opened up your heart to Him. Making sure that you've turned to Him, embraced Him as your Lord and Savior. Amen? Are you following Jesus today? He that's not with me is against me. If you put your trust in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. And it doesn't matter what happens in this election because you'll be secure in Him. Amen? We are secure in Christ. Amen? We have security in Christ. If you're trusting Jesus, you are secure. Amen? The question is, are you trusting Jesus? Please make sure if you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you put your trust in Him. And if you have put your trust in Him, continue to trust in Him. Amen? Amen. 
because he's abundantly supplying all your needs for you to have this wonderful entrance into God's kingdom. And for those who reject him, they'll hear the words, words like this, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But for those who are putting their trust in him and following Jesus, they will hear those beloved words from our Savior on that day. Well done, what? Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen? We have an awesome God. He is so wonderful. And uh, make sure you've chosen Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Amen? If you haven't right now, just say, Father God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I need your grace. I can see that you're so for me, and I know the enemy's against me. But I want to say yes and accept you as my Lord and Savior. For you said, as many as receive you, you gave your son, you gave the right to become the children of God. I want to become a children of God today through faith in your son who died for my sins and rose again and conquered the grave, leaving many infallible proofs and eyewitnesses who sealed their testimony of his resurrection by their blood. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died and rose again. I thank you for eternal life. I put my faith in your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Let's give glory to God. He is good. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Father God, we praise your name. We love you. Can we all please stand as we pass out the cup and the bread?